Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel with me, Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we tell you like it is about the Marlins, whether you like it or not, all the ups and the downs, except on this show, except on this particular episode, we're doing it a little bit different. We are only focusing on the positives. We are canceling out the honest 7-19 and 19 overall record from the month of May for this Marlins team and keeping it very simple in that way, highlighting the individuals and the positive trends that we've seen with this team. And it's not just me joined by Kevin Barral joined by Louis Adio Weiss. Need you guys to smile for me because we're positive. Yeah, positive on this one. Yay. Everything's all right <laughs> with this team. Uh, Louis kind of suggested this to me in advance, a way that we could kind of work around this, um, and sneak in an extra positive right off the bat, because as we're recording this, it's just a couple hours after Edward Cabrera made his return to the team. This was reported by Craig Mish in the month of May. So it counts as part of May. Why do we think this was a really positive development for the team? So, yeah, that was the first thing I was going to ask, because when I when I was writing down positives, I was like, all right, Edward should count. And it was it was reported like two days before May ended, like maybe 30 around that time. But. Edward was really good. I mean, he went six scoreless. And in that sixth inning, he got, I think, CJ Cronazone, who got the hit off of him. And there it was. Strikeout number eight for Cabrera. A new career high. That's a great way to make your first impression in 2022. Uh, I really don't think there's much else to say except a little bit of control issues towards the end. And uh, he, he really used almost all his pitches, uh, the, the changeup and the in the fastball, I think he also used a slider there at some point in the curveball. But yeah, good good start for Edward. I mean, if he could keep this up, Miami's in good hands. Get get it back to the topic that we kind of discussed, or we're going to discuss in the next hour or so here tonight. Is you know what went right in May, and I know when I initially pitched that segment to you back at the end of April, there was maybe a lot more to be excited about. You know, they were coming off what a twelve and ten month that you know we had seen signs that things were. You know, looking good, I believe, you know, Eliezer hadn't looked great. The home runs were still kind of there, uh, but Lazardo looked good. Sandy, you know, minus the early control issues, had still shown that he wasn't just going to be great last year and then kind of flail out this year, you know, post-extension. And obviously Pablo was excellent in April. But, you know, regression is a thing, and that's something I guess we'll talk about with him if we make mention of him in this segment today. Yeah, I mean, I, de I definitely, to keep it realistic, I was talking to Kevin before this, there's going to be, you know, negatives are just inherently going to be mentioned here because, you know, if you go 7-19 and 19 in the month of May after, and I would say a, what's the word, an encouraging month of April, you know, again, regression for some of the players, but there were also guys who had rough Aprils that had good Mays. So, you know, we'll get, we'll talk about that tonight, so. Anything you guys want to note that kind of stuck out to you at first um, as far as positives from the month of May goes? Well, I think an easy place to start would be somebody that had, as you just said, a lousy April, but actually improved in May. And the first person that comes to mind in terms of that particular progression would be Jorge Soler, wouldn't it? Because we were yeah. talking pretty deep into the month about him 
in the same bucket as Avasil Garcia as being like a sunk contract, as being a bad investment. Why did they do this? The pieces don't fit together. And, and in, in May, um, almost every offensive category hitting for an enormous amount of power and doing it with a, just enough plate discipline that he mm. was awesome uh, against his former team, the Braves, against uh, everybody else as well. He even, you could say, he got a little unlucky that he didn't even do more damage. He's had a couple of those balls more so than anybody else, it feels like that just die in the warning track and it's either a double or a long out, something like that. So you were talking about it before about his over, where his overall numbers are now at thanks to his hot streak and they could be even higher, but the bottom line is that he's kind of now living up to his career norms, isn't he? Yeah. You know, it's funny you say career norms. If you look at his OPS at the end of play today, his career OPS is 796. He had a 793 OPS at the end of the first game. So he's kind of in line with what you're going to get. Obviously, if you're giving a guy $12 million a year, you maybe want to see that, you know, consistently sitting at eight, you know, 805, 850. But, you know, he's, you know, obviously hitting for the power that we expected him to hit. I don't know if he's going to hit 47 home runs this year. That's, I mean, but, you know, nothing's impossible considering what he did that one year in Kansas City in another very pitcher-friendly ballpark. But, you know, he's walking a decent amount. The defense has slightly regressed a bit. I mean, I know this is an episode of positives, but it's I think when you have the conversation about Jorge Soler, it's important to note that his history as a defender is shaky, to say the least, to put it mildly. But if you just look at the triple slash line, and I'm probably the king of referencing that, you know, through the month of or through play on 531, you know, a 215 batting average isn't impressive, but in kind of like a suppressed offensive environment, he's slugging, you know, he slugged seven, um, 466. He, you know, 11 home runs, most on the team. He's walking a decent amount, like you noted. And it's funny, you've mentioned that, Eli. He did slightly get a little bit unlucky this month. He only had a BABIP of 241. And, you know, Kevin, as much as Kevin loves that metric, you know, you can only read so much into Babbitt when you're hitting nine home runs. So a lot of the damage that he was doing came via the long ball. I mean, he's stuck 609. And, you know, it's, you know, say what you want about the negative win probability added and the fact that, you know, maybe some of those home runs, particularly some that he hit in San Diego, kind of came in garbage time when the team was already ahead. But regardless, you know, the fact that he's doing this off of big league pitching and, you know, that can't really be overstated is encouraging to say the least. I mean, he's, you know, at the end of play today should be right around a 120-ish OPS plus. And, you know, if the Marlins get that throughout the course of, say, 130, 140 games, you know, what was once a suspect deal at the outset could actually turn out to be pretty solid. And, you know, who knows? He may only be here one year. That could open yeah. So his encouraging, so like, we'll put it this way, his encouraging month of May could be a facilitator and what may be a better rest of the season for him that could entail him to lock, that could cause him to opt out of the final two years of that deal. And as a consequence of that, or maybe a reward for Miami's purpose, you get more consistent bats for Brian De La Cruz, who, while, you know, that could be a positive that we mentioned too. Brian De La Cruz has seen more playing time amid struggles of, say, Jesus Sanchez. So, you know, there's a cause and effect for everything. But say, you know, Soler use, um, uses that month of May to kind of just go on and have a solid rest of the season. He goes and parlays that into another free agent deal. If he decides to opt out, you know, again, positives beneath what could be losing a good bat in the lineup right now in Soler and getting De La Cruz consistent playing time. There's a lot of different ways that you could approach and examine that, that good month that he had from an offensive standpoint. No, yeah. I mean, I think Lewis hit it. Uh, there's really Soler's improvement from a from batting 171 in April to batting a 253. You just see the immense improvement, you know, only hitting two homers in, in April and nine in May. You know, it's 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 an incredible improvement that he's made from from one month to another and already getting off to a good starting off June on the right way. I mean, Soler's May was very encouraging and you look and you compare him to these guys that the Marlins were were looking at, you know, Brian Reynolds, uh, Cedric Mullins. I mean, he's playing, he's technically putting up better stats than those guys. You know, I think I put out the tweet today about uh, Brian Reynolds. I, I used uh, the stat comparison tool on on Stathead. And uh, that was one of them. I, I was very, it, it was surprising to see how, how a guy who many thought would, would be the best signing for the Marlins or just wouldn't be a good fit is playing better than the guy that everyone dreamed of. So, you know, 
shout out to Jorge Soler. If he keeps this up, he's definitely going to get to that 30 to 37 home run marker, I think is what he's on pace to hit at the moment. So yeah, very encouraging May for Soler, and uh, hopefully he keeps it going in June. As Lewis brought up, all of a sudden my mind goes to the idea of, is he actually going to stick with the rest of his deal, or is he might opt out after this year? It's another two years, $24 million beyond this year for a guy that is – now at a stage where you might expect him to like gradually decline. It's just that if, if you hit 40 home runs and you do it as a relatively well-rounded player, then that's going to be an interesting call. And that would be, I guess, a good problem to have for the team considering uh, the way that was looking early on. But Kevin, just bring up anybody else that is on your mind or anything else that is on your mind from May outside of Solaire that brings a smile to your face. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to mention one of the the guys who who we mentioned towards the beginning of the pod, Sandy Alcantara. I mean, the guy had his command issues at the beginning of the season. Didn't have a good start against the San Francisco Giants. It was good enough to keep him in the game, but just not overall. Uh, he had that little, he had that rough start at the beginning of May against the Mariners, uh, and just after that, he's just been lights out ever since. The, the command has been, I think, solved a little bit. And you know, you look at his last two starts against the the Braves which I was with Lewis over there at, at the game and then the other one against the the Braves one on Sunday where he hit, we had the no the full game and then the one where he had the 14 strikeouts against Atlanta once again you're doing that against a team that although the record doesn't show it this team's really good with Ronald Acuna uh Ozzy Alves Adam Duvall who hasn't had the best season Austin Riley I mean Sandy's you know month this season has been one of the best he gets NL and now player of the week, he gets all these awards. And you, you could see it. I think he's, his walks have gone down as well from having four against that Seattle game. It's been pretty much going down ever since. And I know that was a big issue at the, in, May, in April where he was walking a lot of guys. It was just, it was weird of seeing Sandy walk do that. He only walked 10 guys in the whole month of April, which I think is, is less than what he did in April at the moment, if I'm correct. But um it, you know, Sandy's very much impressed, and I think we could fairly say Sandy's back. And I think when Donnie mentioned uh, we still haven't seen the best version of Sandy, this is the best version of Sandy. And, you know, now he's now he's getting that recognition where he could get all-star votes. He can maybe even be the all-star starter for, for the NL at the pace he's going right now. So Sandy's definitely a positive in the month of May for us. You know, it's funny if you, <laughs> I think the day before Pablo starts, Sandy had led the National League in ERA plus. He had, I believe it was 206 ERA plus, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then after Pablo start, Pablo jumped back up because his ERA dipped to 183. And then Pablo had the best ERA plus in the National League. You know, Sandy was terrific. I think he pitched the most innings in baseball in the month of may pitch 42 innings he did get a little bit lucky because he doesn't strike out guys with the propensity that say you know pete justin verlander even corbin burns does you know he had a 213 era he had a 316 fit but the opponent ops was 557 and initially i was looking to see how common that was for a pitcher to do that for miami over a six-start span, and, you know, not that uncommon. I mean, pitchers can go on rolls. We know that baseball is a very streaky sport for the most part, but the three-plus consecutive starts, now eight consecutive innings, just really attests to why I think he's kind of gone to that next level. And we saw that early in his career where Sandy was, you know, he threw a couple of complete games that first full season he pitched with Miami, and you're just like, you know, this guy has so much potential it's just a matter of him putting everything together. And I think what we've seen over – I think each starting in 2020 in that COVID-shortened season was when he really ascended. But now I think he's kind of putting himself in that conversation where he was maybe a top 15 or 20 pitcher a couple of years ago. Now I think you can say that I think this month, as far as the relevancy of the Marlins goes amid the inconsistent play – Sandy has firmly entrenched himself as one of the 10, if not seven best pitchers in the sport because he's now given you substantive performance at a higher level for a good while now. I'd say almost two plus seasons. The one thing that I guess you can point to is just the length that he gives under almost any circumstance is his willingness to like push to pitch counts that nobody else is willing to go to. And 
as we said during this month, sometimes doing it against the same opponent, like doing it against the Braves multiple times, coming back and doing it against them again and having another great start, even with that familiarity, it is almost unheard of to see somebody like performing the way that he is. And I just can't get over how fortunate they were to get that extension done before this year. It's It looks like a good value at the time, and now it's just absurd. There's an important note I think you want to look at, too. If you use baseball um, savant, look at his pitch mix going back to the start of last season, and you'll see that he, kind of similar to what he's doing now, minus the fact that I think he's eliminated his curveball entirely, if I'm not right. mistaken. Yeah, I did yeah. notice that. And I mentioned this to you. I don't know. I think I mentioned this to Kevin during the Braves game that we did in person that he was primarily sinker dominant at the outset of his career, but he's kind of, and that's starting last year, he kind of just said, you know what? And I don't know if this was an organizational decision, you know, whether this is internal conversations with him and the analytics team or Mel, however that may go, but he's kind of just split his pitch mix four ways where he's going fastball, sinker, slider, and then the changeup. And, you know, if you look at the metrics from last year, the percentages which he throw it, everything is about is between about 22 and 28 percent. And then you have that minute amount of the curveball. I think he threw about 2.6 or 2.7 percent of the time. But now the curveball is eliminated, but you're still getting four pitches. And what I think is making it harder for hitters is the fact that obviously he's got the velocity. You know, he has the stuff and that's the thing that most scouts are talent evaluators will look at at the outset when they really assess a pitcher's, you know, or project performance. But the fact that you don't know what's coming each time is just making it a lot harder. And I know that may be a little overstated, but the fact that he's consistently leaving hitters guessing is one of the reasons why I think he's managed to sustain the success that he has, if not get better. I mean, he's, you know, he's doing things right now that, you know, we've never seen from him before but we've also kind of expected it. I mean, he's got a one, he's got a 0.72 ERA over his last three starts and he's got a 178 FIP. He's allowed five runs, two total over his last 25 innings pitch over those three starts. There aren't many guys who are going to give you 25 innings over three start stretches anymore. I mean, we marvel at guys who give you 25 innings over five starts now because five innings has kind of become like the new quality start, which is something we've talked about, but you know, again, it's what's separating him. It's, you know, he's getting better, like you said, Eli. And, you know, like right now, if the All-Star game were today, he's starting in L.A. Well, now that we brought him up, I think it's only natural to go into Pablo a little bit. The overall numbers aren't as ridiculous, but he did have a couple of arguably the best starts of his career as well. He, he finally, it had been a joke going back years that he like can't get past nine strikeouts in a game. Like that had been his ceiling, I don't know how many times. And he finally had that 11K game against the Brewers. So he's, he's a much different story than Sandy, isn't he? In that we just mentioned the way that Sandy is so unpredictable, the way he uses his stuff with Pablo, you kind of know what you're getting. It's so reliant on that changeup and yet it still works. And it's still a pretty, oh, that one special pitch has kind of led him a pretty long way. Hasn't it? Yeah. And he's kind of doing it a different way than Sandy is. I mean, he throws his fastball and his changeup pretty much the same amount of uh, percentage wise, but then he also mixes in the cutter seldomly. You know, he's got that curveball and he's got an occasional sinker that he'll throw. Of all pitchers in the National League this season, he is first in baseball reference war 2.7. Mm-hmm. And situational wins added, i.e., win probability added relative to the leverage index, he's first 1.5. He is first in ERA plus 225. He is first, obviously, in ERA because of the ERA plus 183. And in a down month of May relative to what was in a historic for the franchise month of April for Pablo, 278 ERA and 35 innings, 35.2 innings, 38 strikeouts. Opponents did hit him better. That's why the, the 701 OPS kind of gives you some leeway into why his FIP was almost four, 3.76. But again, you know, the Marlins aren't a situationally great team because they tend to score their runs in the worst possible of scenarios. That's why they lose so many one-run games. That's why they went one and five in his starts, despite the fact that you at least expect to win, you know, 60% of those starts and, you know, at least maybe go four and two or three and three, at least 
if your pitcher's, you know, giving you, you know, six starts of a sub three RA. But yeah, I mean, he's despite the slight regression, and that's what you can expect after you post a sub 0.5 ERA in your first month of the season, he's still been excellent. And, you know, it'll be cool to see for a guy that was fringe and, and fun enough. They want the Latin, one of the last surviving players in the uh, Trevor Hoffman butterfly effect trade. Yeah. Uh, you know, Pablo looks like he's pitching his way to a ticket to LA soon. So again, that could be fun to see. And if he keeps us up and the Marlins continue to squander one run games, we wrote about it last week, but he, you know, unfortunately he could be one of the odd men out and, you know, who knows what the Hulk could bring. Should Miami actually decide to press that red button and trade him? Yeah. Well, I shouldn't touch on what the thing you mentioned. I don't know if anybody's, everybody's aware that the connection between him and the very start of the franchise, that if you use a look at a trade tree and all the connected trades, you can draw a line all the way to Pablo to 30 years ago when they traded Trevor Hoffman for Gary Sheffield. There's actual a connection. You could go player to player all the way through the years. And it's probably eight or nine separate transactions that yeah. bridge them together. And I guess the only way it survives at this point is if Pablo eventually gets traded. Um, but <laughs> but it's, I think everybody would be happy if it just died as it is in Pablo's stage with the Marlins for however many years that he's uh, effective with anything else on Pablo, Kevin, what you've seen from him this month. I mean, I think Lewis hit it. Um, this guy, although you could say it was a down year, um, a down month. People say that because of how good he was in April. I mean, a 0.39 ERA. He, he, I think that was, that was league leading for sure. Uh, I mean, if, if there's something else that we could talk about Pablo, the only concern is that he walked guys a little more and he walked them 11 times that month in this month of may compared to four only in april but he struck out 38 guys uh and the pitch mix is pretty much has i think he's almost using the the fastball as much as the change up this year compared to last year where i think he was a little more change up heavy but i mean pablo's really good and i think lewis mentioned it if if they trade him the haul is going to be huge it's it's going to be huge for pablo and i think what's so good about this season for pablo is he hasn't gotten injured the one-two punch between Sandy and Pablo may, may be the best in baseball, one of the best in baseball. The one thing I would note, too, with Pablo, which I think I find more impressive, and I think right now why he's slightly kind of overtaken Trevor Rogers in the hierarchy of pitchers that you rely on in this rotation, cool. is, you know, we talk about in-game adjustments a lot. Hitters have to do it more often than pitchers, although pitchers need to kind of adjust the way that they pitch if they give up hits and have to pitch out of the stretch, et cetera. Pablo, a lot, and Eli, you can attest to this too. A lot of the damage that Pablo uh, that was done against Pablo was done early. I mean, we saw it in his second to last start, where he gave up a couple of runs to, to Tampa early, and he settled in, and he wound up giving Miami seven strong innings. He had eight strikeouts. He didn't walk a, a guy. You know, the home run, the long ball, kind of bit him a little bit. But you know, we see with Trevor Rogers. Trevor Rogers has been has not done a good job this season at adjusting when adversities. Have presented themselves and i know it's easier said than done to do that but pablo has done a good job of when he's gone into trouble he's either you know mitigated the damage giving up a couple of runs here and there but then he manages to go on and settle in and you know more often than not you know his lines read a lot better than they actually are because you know he like i said he makes the adjustments in games and i think that's one of that's that's an example of a pitcher who's growing and he's learning more about himself. Yeah. And he's also learning how to navigate big league hitters better than he has. I mean, everybody remembers the outing he had against Atlanta in 2019 and that 29 run game. He got, you know, he got clobbered, but or it may have been 2020 if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that was 20. Yeah, that was 2020. Yeah. 2020. But, you know, ever since then, he's kind of just made adjustments after you know adversities that he's seen and he's been better than ever so i think the big in-game adjustments that he's managed to make amid early starts where he struggled have done pay dividends for him and hopefully he continues to do that should because we know baseball is a, is a game of imperfect measures he's gonna struggle again that's just you know it happens to the best of players so if he can continue to overcome those struggles you know, not the sky's not the limit, but, you know, 
you can kind of count on him to sustain a level of great pitching for a while, I think. Yeah, you yeah, refreshed my memory with his 11 strikeout game really quick on this because he gave up a leadoff home run in that game to Colton Wong. I remember this puts me yep. back in my brain space where it was him and Corbin Burns uh, in that pitching matchup, and like immediately you're like, oh, no, this is this is not going to go well. This Here is going to be again. the game where uh, the superior pitcher emerges, and it's not going to be Pablo this time. And from that point forward, nearly perfect it was. rest and of the game. And Corbin Burns has a 195 ERA this year. He's, I believe he's second to Pablo in pitcher war right now, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that just speaks to where we are right now as to who's been the best pitcher in the National League. So, you know, even if he wasn't as great as he was in April, you can't expect somebody to sustain that over the course. This isn't team Tim Keefe in 1880. This isn't like, you know, Dutch Leonard in 1914. You know, the, the era of a sub one ERA all be in a even in a depressed offensive environment with the ball being rewound the way it has been, it's not gonna happen. So, like, if guy when we can see guys do this, regardless of era, it's impressive. So, yeah, uh, but well, I, I have to jump in just to make people understand that we're recording this during the second doubleheader game, which is tied at 11 heading into the seventh inning. Oh, and Lord. yeah, we're not gonna go into it, but I think just we're speaking at a very unique moment in the Marlins season where. Yeah. They're dealing with a critical game, and I just can't get over how neither side will stop scoring every half inning. It's it's the course field effect, you know. But I wanted to quickly expand on what Lewis said on Pablo making in-game adjustments. Um, he this is I think overall from baseball savant, but in the first inning, his ERA is at 4.50. Then the second one, it, it goes down lower and lower and lower to where it gets to a 0.00 ERA in the third and fourth inning. And then he starts getting a little banged up in the fifth, but it's still 2.08 ERA. So Pablo's in-game adjustments have been crucial. And I think that Tampa start, we you spoke about it. You could really blame that that inside the park homer to attribute that one to yeah, the Kiermaier one. It was Jesus Sanchez who just didn't, I guess you could say didn't make the right read. I think he could have let that one just drop down. Maybe a double would have been the worst case scenario on that one. But yeah, um, I think Pablo's in-game adjustments have been crucial. Well, Kevin, I wanted to touch on one guy. I don't know if you're prepared to discuss Miguel Rojas, but you've been a big critic of him early in the season about how he was on his way out as a useful player, as a regular player, due to injuries, especially this month. Joey Wendell missed a lot of time, and now B.A. as well. Like He's kind of forced into the lineup every single day. He hasn't put up like crazy big numbers in May, but he has returned to being the guy that he was at least last year, right? And offensively hitting a few home runs that we weren't expecting also and finally playing some great defense it kind of culminated in that one game just recently towards the end of the month which was on what should have been his mother's birthday who passed away this past offseason he had an amazing all-around game with a home run and like three hits and one of the critical defensive plays at the very end he's he is a has he restored your faith in him a little bit as a key piece of this team He's made me feel better about the shortstop situation. And, you know, his month of May, he ended it off as hot as it could get. 250, 305, 368, 673. He had two home runs, five RBIs. He walked more and struck out just a bit more, just two more strikeouts. But, uh, I mean, if, if Miggy Rowe could keep it up just like that, I don't mind him playing at the platoon role with Joey Wendell once he comes back from injury. That won't be the case now since Wendell and B are both injured. So, We'll be seeing a lot of Miguel, and if he could keep that up, hey, you know, we'll take it. And he just hit a home run in today's game against the Rockies, so in the second game. So I mean, I, I'm I'm happy with how Miguel is playing at the moment. He's definitely making a contribution, and you know, the glove has helped out a lot for this team, especially in that game versus Atlanta, the the one where he had the the three hit game in which one of them was a home run. He um yeah. he made that incredible defensive play, which uh, at the end of the day was very crucial in terms of. You know, the three outs because that ninth inning, uh has got a little bit banged up there towards the end with a couple hits. And I think it was like a double, I think a run even scored or something like that. But it was, it was a big crucial first out that he had to get there. So, yes, I, I, I'm a little bit more restored on Miggy Rowe at age, I think, 33 or 34. But we'll see how it goes. And once Wendell comes back, we'll, I think we'll see another platoon type of situation there. I mean, his yeah, the defense is just kind of – been consistently good for him for a while though i mean he's even in the the cameo roles at first base this year he's saved two runs by drs he's above average at shortstop 
Rojas's glove has been the main thing that's kept him in the big leagues. I mean, if you're OPSing sub 700 for almost a decade, you know, then obviously something has to be going right for you to continue to get consistent playing time that he has. No, I mean, to expect him to put up his 2020 season would be, you know, bordering on delusional considering that he has an offensive profile that doesn't lend itself to those expectations. That being said, again, you need him for the defense. And then for a, a rotation that has, you know, two singer ballers now in Cabrera and Sandy, even though Sandy, like you noted, Kevin is featuring the singer a little bit less, but we, he does have that even dispersal of his pitch mix. I think a guy like Rojas is crucial, as is Wendell, because those guys, you know, they play good defense. And good defense can't be overstated, especially when you consider the fact that Miami has a hard time scoring runs when they need to. So all the help that you can get on the defensive side of the ball, I think helps. And, you know, if they're not hitting, then Rojas is going to have to provide value somehow. Speaking of that, he just singled. So, you know, yay. <laughs> um, uh, As far as another offensive positive though, and, you know, he got hurt today, which it doesn't help, but he's kind of remained the same consistent hitter that he was, or at least, you know, not a superstar, but he just hits whenever he's on the field. Garrett Cooper had a pretty good offensive month of May, although he dropped his on-base percentage from 392 to 360. Mm-hmm. If you look at the overall slash, though, you know, he didn't hit for much power. I believe he only hit like two home runs, but he 289, 350, 456, and three plate appearances. He had an 805 OPS. His career OPS is 804, so like he's literally just been Garrett Cooper for the month of May. And, you know, obviously things that haven't gone as well on the scorecard, but Cooper just, you know, regardless of what you say about his injury history and it's valid to, you know, voice those concerns, he's just consistent in a lineup that bears a lot of inconsistency. I mean, I don't, I know he doesn't hit for the prototypical power that you want out of a first baseman, but the ability to see pitches and to get on base and, you know, he, you know, he hits the ball relatively hard when he does make consistent contact is encouraging. So I, I think, you know, despite the fact that he's not slugging per se, given his position, the fact that he's first base DH primarily, Cooper has just kind of been himself. You know, it's, you know, seeing pitches and, you know, doing what he normally does. I think it's at least worthy of a mention. In May, the simple fact that he was on the field was pretty important. 103 plate appearances. I looked this up. He only had one month in his entire career where he had more plate appearances than that. Simply being on the field has been important. If he's just a, an above average hitter, kind of well above average hitter, and he's on the field and he's hitting in the top third of your lineup, then that's big. That's big. And that's been the biggest knock on him is the lack of availability. So for him to start 24 games at first base and DH, just being there, that was, we're kind of like scraping the bottom of the barrel here for positives, right? <laughs> we're, we're just applauding a guy. Yeah. Applauding a guy for being on the field. That's that was nice. So fingers crossed that whatever took him out here in one of Wednesday's games early is nothing serious and that we keep it going. That has been the most important thing for him. And that was something that did make a difference in a couple games and it kept them within striking distance a bunch of other times just because he was in the lineup and doing what Garrett Cooper does. And if, yeah, if, and- you, if you look at his savant metrics though, and I'm looking at them right now as we speak, yeah. you can also like if you're positively forecasting ahead you can kind of assume that he may tap into a little bit more power i mean he's in the 84th percentile in barrel percentage and like you noted to kevin when he was kind of talking about that the other day talking about baseballs being barreled up you know home runs generally coincide with barrels so if a lot of the if the luck tends to find him a little bit more we could expect him should he stay healthy obviously when we don't know what the official diagnosis is right now, given his injury, Cooper could hit for a little bit more power. I mean, he, like I said, he walks a decent amount. He's, he's, he's striking out a little bit more than usual. But again, like when you're barreling up baseballs as consistently as he is, I think you can expect him to hit a few more home runs soon. Should he be on the field? And I think that could help the team so long as they come and, you know, situations that present themselves with an opportunity for Miami to either take or maintain leads. So who knows? I mean, he's got a 361 on base percentage right now. You'll take that any day of the week, regardless of what position he's playing. 
Yeah, and I think I can't even believe I'm saying JP's name here, but JP said he's one of the more professional hitters on the Marlins. I think that's a fair assessment because he's been one of the best hitters, actually. One of the most consistent guys, too. That Tampa series, very consistent. And, you know, as I'm actually looking at the the Savant page as well. And his past 250 plate appearances, it shows a good trend of him going up, a steady trend. And he, I think he walked more and everything in the month of May. He, you know, it's only two more. He walked two more times, but it's still an improvement saying, I guess you could say a guy's a tad bit more patient in this month. Uh, the batting average went up. He he just besides his OBP, which went down, he he improved almost every statistical part of his game. So Garrett Cooper, hopefully he stays in, and he's been batting around first, second, third in the lineup, which I, I found interesting that they had him leading off, but he he was hitting there as well. So uh, he he was hitting 375 when he was batting first, and I know it's only nine plate appearances, but I, it, it it proves that Cooper could be consistent pretty much everywhere except when he's batting third and fourth for some reason oh and fifth so i guess you could look at <laughs> well, i think you can spend all day like picking apart little bits of that i i don't yeah. i wouldn't read too much into that in terms of exactly what spot he is in the lineup in he did have to bet they put him in unusual spots when jazz was missing yeah. time of course mm-hmm. due to his hamstring injury that that really screwed everything up in terms of exactly what how they wanted to order things here and, and so the lineup moving forward is going to be Really tricky to figure out because with both Wendell and, and now BA going out, uh, obviously a couple aside from like players overall, a couple moments that stood out. One of them that's pretty awkward to celebrate is that Joe Dunan's home run in his very first <laughs> at bat. That was of course in May. That was great. That led to a team win, and he got to play a couple other more times, including once in front of his home crowd in Miami. As we're recording this, he just got claimed off of waivers by the Braves, so he's not going to make any more Marlins memories for the foreseeable future. But that stood out to me. And most recently, the Jesus Sanchez almost record-breaking home run that went 496 feet at Coors Field. This is a guy that we've talked, spoken very frankly about on Fish Stripes Live several times about being a potential candidate to get sent down to the minors. He'd been overall, his May was a disaster. It was really bad. But what I mean is just ending on a note where he shows you why he's on this roster in the first place, why they are so excited about him because his pure power is special. It is one of the longest home runs that's been hit since we've been measuring home runs, especially during the stat cast era, the last eight years, it was Giancarlo Stanton like, and then he hit another one uh, to start June in case people thought this was a one-off with him for a guy that's been pretty open about how intangible stuff kind of gets into his head, how his confidence is a really big deal. And sometimes the bad decisions he makes is a simple uh, reflection of his state of minds. I-, I just thought having that one moment for him is something that was worth commenting on that. That could be a jumping off point that gets him back to being the everyday caliber player that they thought he was entering the season. Yeah. I mean, how can you not talk about that? The guy hit four, 496 foot bomb, which hit the third deck of course field. That's the first time I've actually seen a baseball get hit that high and from a guy like Jesus, which today he hit another home run. He, he's having himself a pretty good game here today in the double headers. So, you know, you could say it's course field and all, but which it may be most, most of it may be like a good 90% of it may be course field, but Hey, hopefully this is something that could get not only him, but the rest of the offense going for this month of June, which which I hope it does because right now they're in the bottom of the seventh, I'm pretty sure, the top of the eighth in an 11-11 game, which has just been craziness. The month got 14 runs in the first game, so the offense is getting it going, and Jesus Sanchez was a big part of that in the start of this month. Um, I mean, you look at that, I think it's one of the strongest home runs ever hit in Coors Field. It was Stanton and... Uh, for for course field, I think he's number two with Stanton number one at five oh four. So that was a very cool moment to watch, and, and that was something else that went very viral online as well. So the Marlins got some some uh, exposure out there in the social media world. I think it's fun to know too that the um, you know more for like the mimetic aspect of baseball, the lighter side when we're not so focused on you know you know asking the existential question of whose role is important and what role will this guy play with the team in their quest for winning. Williams Acedillo made it back to the big leagues near the tail end of the month, La Tortuga. And 
you know, I think the one reason beyond the fact that, you know, be, besides his physical appearance that we marvel or can at least have a smile come to our faces at the sight of him in the big leagues is his profile. I mean, when we saw him come up with Minnesota, this guy was a catcher. And, you know, no play – he has no play discipline whatsoever, but he's also, like, immune to striking out. He's in that, like, class of, like, the Nick Madrigals and, you know, the Nico Horners of the guys who just have this clinical um, bat-to-ball skill that is so seldom in today's game. Yeah, and in Marlins yeah, history, you have to go all the way back to, like, Juan Pierre to find Juan. somebody like this, even though that was the opposite physical build – that just speaks to how unusual this combination of skills is in this and then package. The, the actual athleticism. I mean, I believe he stole his first career base in Atlanta. And yep. the, the fact that he, you know, you look at him, <laughs> there's the gif on the screen there. You look at him play, like you look at this guy, and you're like, yeah, he's nothing but a catcher, if not a first baseman in a blowout game, but he's playing like third base and second base. And, Actually, looking okay when he does it. I believe he played every position except shortstop in Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. Played center field at one point there. So he's got, you know, that Prince Fielder like sneaky athleticism where, you know, we never saw Prince Fielder playing across the diamond the way that um, Astadio did. But for him, it works. And, you know, obviously he hasn't stayed in the big leagues as far as on a consistent basis. Because he's, you know, been in the minors, and we know about the issues he had in the winter league when he kind of got into a little fist fight there. But he is at least a source of entertainment amid, you know, the cloud of questions that surround this team right now. And he's played well. You know, obviously he hasn't struck out yet. You know, he's played second base. He's played some third base. He, yeah, he hit a home run today. So yeah, he's been up. He's been entertaining to say the least with his occasional mixture of power and not striking out whatsoever. And he hit a home run today as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when you really look at it, besides entertainment and all that stuff, he, he could provide some versatility defensively on different spots. I mean, as you mentioned, he pretty much plays everywhere. He's even pitched. So if the Marlins, you know, are down 29 to nine, he'll be the guy to come in and pitch. So, yeah, I mean, this is this at the time, you know, you look at the signings like, wait, well, why they make this signing? But now you're looking, you know, BA's out, Wendell's out. It, it, it's looking like a pretty good signing right now, you know, especially since he's kind of been producing very well. I mean, I know it was like, he actually had a good amount of plate appearances in May, so he he hit two thirty eight. Oh no, this is Stalin's. I'm sorry, that's the next thing I wanted to mention. But yeah, I mean, our studios has been very very good for the Marlins so far. Hopefully, he keeps it going and keeps the ball in play. You, you said you had Stallings on your mind. You might as well get him out of your system. Yeah, I may as well. Wind down here. Any, anybody else that we want to cover here that we haven't already covered? I mean, Stallings is the last guy I wanted to talk about because I, I know. I mean, he's in, he beside in a 189 April. He's been hitting. I know it's two. It's under 250, but for a guy who many expect him to be just a defensive catcher, he's been putting the ball in play. I mean, he he's walked a lot more. He walked three times in April. Now eight in May. He has more RBIs, and he still hasn't. He hasn't hit a home run in May, but he has 15 hits compared to 10 in April. So he's hitting 238, 333, 286, 619. I know it's not the biggest type of offensive power out there, but he's been pretty good at it. And I know I spoke to him. I think that video is also on Twitter, as well as Eli's clip of his batting stance from the start of the season till right now. And and he's made adjustments. Obviously, he went back to his old original batting stance, and that's what's been working for him. Uh, I think in Tampa, he had a very nice, uh, I think it was like a double or RBI double. He got it there. So Songs has been a nice addition so far for the Marlins. And defensively, he's been extremely good. But you look offensively that first month, besides that one game in San Francisco, he really didn't do much until now in May where he kind of impressed me at least. I mean, the guy's getting hits where he has to. He's, he's getting on base, which is what the team needs at the moment. They needed more contact guys besides sluggers is what I've been saying. You know, that John Birdie type of guy who – could get you on base and start producing some offense. Jake Stallings is able to do that in the month of May, and let's hope he gets it done in July as well. I have, like, two more quick ads. The last one, and, you know, despite the fact that the results weren't necessarily great, I think at least deserves a mention that the Marlins got Dylan Floro back. You know, we saw those first two or three outings. He looked shaky, but then he put together, I believe it was a four or five 
outing stretch where he didn't allow any runs. Obviously, he's not striking guys out. I believe he only has, like, one strikeout thus far through seven yeah. and a third innings. Yeah. Which, you know, he doesn't have the most overpowering stuff, but he also doesn't, you know, he's not a soft tosser by any means. I guess you could maybe say he is in this era, but, you know, he's kind of coming off an injury. He's settling back in, and I think, you know, the early returns weren't great, but the fact that he's at least back and pitching, you know, he was the closer pretty much for the last two months of the season, and he did relatively well in that role. I think if Miami starts to play better and, you know, putting up 25 runs today is encouraging, although it's Colorado and we know that there's a hangover effect when players even who play there on a consistent basis tend to go elsewhere, you know, could be encouraging early on, but the fact that he's back and, you know, we know what he did last when he was closer, encouraging, at least to say the least. And then, Eli, you know, I make note of this a lot when games go final. I love the Pythagorean win-loss record relative to yeah. run differential and the fact that the Marlins, as I've said several times this season, they do not hit with runners in scoring position. I believe entering play today, they hit a 309 collective team on base percentage with men on it and only hit, like, four home runs all season with runners in scoring position. You know, they entered play today with a Pythagorean win-loss record of 23 and 23. They had a plus four run differential at the start of play today. Now, obviously, today they have 20 wins, but they have 27 losses. And their run differential, I believe, after this game is plus 17. And it currently sits like that right now because they're currently tied. But when you look at, I guess, what could be encouraging because, you know, they don't have the perfect team on the field right now. They are about middle of the pack, despite the fact that they continued to lose on a consistent basis in May. They were an above-average offensive team by weighted runs created plus. From an OP, from a weighted runs created plus perspective, 102, yet they were still 16th. They were 15th in isolated power, 157. They were 16th in home runs hit, 31. They were tied with Seattle, so technically they were 15th. They were 16th in offensive war from a fan graphs perspective. So they've been about a middle-of-the-pack team who, again, are producing in situations that are not conducive to them winning because they are, one, playing so many close games. Two, they aren't scoring when they need to be scoring. And, you know, it leads me to believe that at least some better luck is expected. And we saw this early last year. They were they had a plus I believe at one point they had a plus 50 run differential and yet they were consistently underperforming and mm -hmm. that, you know, we saw the latter present itself where the win loss record continued to go down and they would just, they would give up more runs and they would lose. But I think obviously, you know, you know if you play, t you know, four sub 500 baseball, there's room for improvement. And amid those metrics, I think that, you know, we can at least expect them to play better baseball, especially when you consider the division that they're in, you know, Atlanta not playing well, the nationals clearly in a rebuild. You know, I mean, the Mets are great right now. They have an 11 game lead in that division, but who knows, you know, you know, we could say it's the Mets. And then it's also the fact that they're pitching without, you know, DeGrom and Scherzer for extended periods of time. And, you know, how long can you really expect that Buck Walter honeymoon phase to really, last four but i think the marlins have you know like i said they've been unlucky and we've seen that manifest itself at several times if you know their middle of the pack numbers indicate anything you know from the pythagorean win-loss record to where they finished from an offensive perspective in may you can expect that there's they should at least be somewhat better in june and I think hope is probably the biggest thing that you can draw from May amid the poor performance and that, you know, things could have been, they were bad, but they could have been worse and they actually should have been better. Yeah. And, you know, you look at this month of June, it's, it's actually probably one of the most important months of the season. You're playing the Mets, you're playing the Phillies, you're playing, you're playing Washington. And, and, you know, let's look a little bit for, further. You look at July, you're playing the Reds, you're playing the Pirates. I know these teams technically I know the Pirates have a better record than the Marlins. Yeah, but by one game, if they win today, they'll have the same record. But, I mean, those are games you should be able to win, and that should be more than enough to at least put you at 500 right when you're at the trade deadline, and that's when you start to think what you're going to do. But, you know, you look at the division. Atlanta's been underperforming. Philadelphia's been underperforming. The Mets have been the Mets. But Philadelphia just got to a plus-one run differential. Miami's at a plus-17. 
uh, and the Mets are at plus 77, and you look at the negative run differentials, Washington is at negative 76, and Atlanta has a negative 10. So, I mean, Miami's scoring runs, as you mentioned, but it's not in the right spots. It's pretty much in garbage time, like the Stolaire mm-hmm. home run, the Abisayel home run, and I think that was in San Diego as well. But, I mean, I mean, uh, hopefully they get it going in June. This is definitely a team I could see them getting it going here. You have a series in San Francisco, then you're going against Washington. That should be hopefully a game that a series that you could sweep, and that's three more wins. So then you have to go to Houston. So that it doesn't get much easier than that. You usually play fairly well against Philadelphia. They should be able to deal with that. So the month of June looks promising, uh, and let's hope they could get it going. That's how, I think that's the way we could keep it positive here. Yeah, that's a great way to end it off. Unequivocally positive. <laughs> where all their positive everything is still ahead of them if they can seize it they're gonna have to do it slightly differently they're gonna do it luzardo it seems is gonna be out for a while still so edward cabrera is he gonna be able to hold down that rotation spot is astadio more than just a meme and a gift star is he an actual productive player because he's gonna have to play a lot there's gonna be relying on him as well they're gonna have to eventually figure out this closer situation we didn't even get into that, but that's going to be one of the prevailing storylines moving forward. If they are going to be consistently leading in these games, heading into the later innings, um, who who like closes down those wins? It, your guess is as good as mine. And, that, and we're, we're going to find out together. We're going to find out together watching Marlins games and by following us on Fish Stripes. You know exactly where to do that. Fish Stripes across all our various social media platforms here on the podcast feed, both myself and Fish Stripes Unfiltered and the Small Pod as well. And the main destination for all of our coverage, of course, fishstripes.com. The fishstripes.com. Just like Paul said right there, fishstripes.com to follow us for all our written analysis and news and historical context about Miami Marlins. I've been Eli Sussman, Louis Adia Weiss, and Kevin Baral right next to me as well here on the official show. I will be back with this one on Monday. And we're actually going to have a secret player interview on that as long as along with a usual breakdown of the team. So stick with that rate and review the pod. We appreciate the support as always go fish.